Good morning. I'm glad to be with you this morning. I was uh, supposed to be here back in January. You might remember that big snowstorm we had, and so we were all sitting at home that Sunday, but I'm glad to be here with you this morning. And uh, I don't know about you, but um, I am tired of COVID. How many of you are tired of COVID? Yes. Uh, it's good that policies are starting to wind down, and though there are hot spots and infections here and there, um, we seem to be on the way out. The interesting thing about that COVID virus, and like many viruses, is that it was spread through the air. Remember a couple of years ago when we had no idea what it was, how it was moving, and we'd bring our groceries home and wash them, because we had no idea how this thing was going. Well, we finally figured out it spread through the air, and it wasn't just sitting around on surfaces. It required people to be moving around the world, and because of the global economy that we have and society that we have, it moved around the world fast. I remember I was in California that uh, end of February for a, a work thing, and I remember hearing about some people on a boat that had this weird disease, and I thought, well, I'm glad I'm going back to Iowa. Little did I know that it was following right behind me. And uh, before we knew it, there was a global phenomenon of this virus going everywhere. There's another global phenomenon that spreads around the world, and it spreads through the air. It doesn't spread by laying on surfaces, waiting for someone to pick it up. It's spread person to person, one by one. And just like COVID or the flu or any other phenomenon of this sort, it changes people's lives instantly. But this phenomenon doesn't ravage people's bodies, it uplifts their souls. It took about 30 years for this phenomenon to grow in the known world at the time. There were stories of this prophet of Israel that preached of peace and justice, love and sacrifice, and then like so many that came before him, the government snuffed him out. But unlike anyone else after him or before him, his followers claimed that he didn't stay dead, that he was raised from the dead. In fact, that 500 people had seen him talk after he died. They ate with him. They spoke with him. And now his followers were claiming that he who had died and rose again ascended to heaven and was sitting at the right hand of God the Father. In fact, they were so bold to claim that this prophet of Israel was God was and is God. They boldly claimed that that message was true, that it had broken beyond the walls of, Ju of Judaism, and that now all people were welcomed into the kingdom of God and into the family of God. Now the church in ancient Rome uh, flourished by this one-to-one -one spread of this phenomenon of the gospel. There was a gospel outbreak. It wasn't easy for the church. This thing didn't spread just uh, willy-nilly. It took effort. It spread quickly, but it was, came at a cost. One of the costs was that other people came in spreading um, stories that sounded familiar, that sounded like the gospel, but were a false gospel. They spread the lie that Jesus wasn't enough, that his message was deficient, 
they would preach that, some of them would preach that you had to have Jesus plus. You had to have Jesus plus the, the Judaism of your, uh, the ritual Judaism that, that surrounded them. You had to have Jesus plus the law. Another lie that was similar to the gospel but was not the gospel was that Jesus, yes, the message that he said was true, that, uh, that he lived and died and rose again to save us from our sins, but that there's also this secret message that only a few people heard, and you had to be in this special group with special knowledge to know him completely. Throughout the spreading of the gospel, these lies kept finding their way along with the gospel, and they had to be snuffed out, they had to be removed. But still, the gospel proclaimed went throughout the world on the lips of people like Apollos and Priscilla, Aquila, Stephen, Philip, Barnabas, and Paul. They were sent out around the world, and the world was listening. And they were preaching and writing and spreading this word, men and women of faith, and they were praying. They were praying for the church. You know, as I prepared to preach this morning, I uh, had some time to pray. And I often, when I go to places to, to preach, I don't know the people in particular. I, I know of them. I know your Pastor John, and I've been here a time or two, but I don't really know the details of what's going on in your lives. So I didn't know how to pray specifically. So I pray for the things that I know you need. So in this week, I've been praying for you to have faith that works itself out in love. And in the first part of the book of Colossians, where we're going to be uh, looking today, in Colossians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul has a similar conundrum. He has seen the gospel proclaimed in this town in Colossae, and he hears of this church, and he wants to pray for them. Paul had been a traveling teacher, thinker, and writer, going on missionary journeys to and around Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And then he found himself in prison. And while he was in prison, he wrote uh, this letter to the Colossians. He wrote uh, the book of Ephesians. He wrote a little letter Philemon, and he wrote Philippians. We're not sure which prison he was in at this time or when exactly, but these are the prison epistles, and he was writing from that time. Now, Paul had never been to the church in Colossae. He had at least heard of them. He knew about them, but he had never visited them. But Paul felt it important to connect with them, at least through writing, to encourage them in their faith. Paul, I think, felt a, a responsibility for the churches in Asia Minor, even for the ones that he didn't start. He, was, he wanted to make sure that they were on the right path, that they were hearing the truth. And um, he, he feels that uh, he needs to counter these counterclaims of, of Christ. He wants to make sure that they're hearing the truth and distinguishing that from the false things around them. He knew that this, these other messages sounded similar to the gospel that he proclaimed, but they were in error and they were insidious, and he wanted to make sure that the people in Colossae uh, knew the truth. 
At the end of the letter, it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea, uh, uh, Laodicea yeah, in, in uh, Colossians 4.16. So Paul knew that what he was writing to them, though it was pertinent to their particular situation, was something that could be universally spread, and so it had meaning for the other churches, and that's why it has meaning for us today. So Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it uh, starts off and says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. He starts off by introducing himself, not by what he's done, but by the, what God has done. Paul is an apostle of Christ by the will of God. You know, when I introduce myself to someone, I usually tell them my name, uh, maybe a little bit about myself. Paul is a much better theologian than me. He uh, had accolades uh, beyond measure, uh, sat at the feet of Gamaliel and was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He had every reason to say, to proclaim the greatness of his own credentials. But instead, Paul says, simply, he's a messenger of Christ William Barclay in his commentary on Colossians says, Here, right at the outset of this letter, is the whole doctrine of grace. A man is not what he has made himself, but what God has made him. Paul recognizes that God has made him, has has put him in this place, and it is by God's will that he is with them, at least in writing. Now Paul was with his friend and protege, Timothy, whom he calls our brother. Paul knew that his time in ministry was coming to an end. We all know that there's an end uh, in the work that we do, in the ministry that we do, and he knew that his was coming to a close. He didn't know when, but he knew that it was uh, coming. And he was building into this man, Timothy. He was preparing Timothy to go after him, carrying on the mantle of uh, the churches and caring for the churches in Asia Minor. So he addressed this to the saints that are faithful. He called them holy people. Not many of us today call ourselves saints. In fact, it's more likely for someone to say I'm not a saint than to say I'm a saint, right? But, um, you know, that's exactly what you are. The truth is, those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ that Paul preached by the will of Jesus Christ, you are saints. You're holy. You're set apart for God. Just as Paul was set apart by the will of God, the people reading this letter are set apart to do the will of God. So they and you are saints. With that introduction, Paul gets into the meat of his letter. In verse 3, he says... We, thank, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that springs from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. 
In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Paul's keeping the focus on the boss here. He says, we thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When I was preparing for today, I wondered uh, what had been happening uh, around, around here. There's no way for me to know, really. So um, I wasn't really sure what kind of uh, joys or troubles this church was going through, but I assumed that they're similar to the same kind of joys and trials and struggles that other churches in our area have. I go to Cornerstone Church, and we were happy to have you at our uh, facility on Good Friday. Um, and, uh, you know, we go through the same kind of struggles that I'm sure you have, upheavals from our bouts with COVID. Um, we've had people come, we've had people go, we've had children grow and go off to new adventures. We've seen change happen, and change is always hard, and change is inevitable. And yet it's a part of life, whether for an individual or a church and I imagine the same kinds of things happened around here. So I pray about change, about what's going on in your lives. But no matter the specific circumstances, I can still thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, just as Paul did. In all things, in all change, in all of the situations we face, God's will remains. And God remains faithful to his people. Paul can thank God for what he's heard of them in regards to what they believe and about their love. These two things go hand in hand. In fact, I'd say you can't have one without the other. There is faith that works itself out in love. Faith is active in love, and if it's not active in love, then you have to ask if it's really faith. James says in James 2, 18 and 19, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So faith and works go together. Faith working its, out, its way out through love. Paul thanks God for them, because they have faith, and that faith is working itself out in love for God's people. There was a, a book called The Cotton Patch Gospel that was written a number of years ago by Clarence Jordan. It's kind of a, not really a translation, but a reimagination of the gospel set um, actually in um, the U.S. and the South. And in that uh, Cotton Patch Gospel, he was trying to uh, make the gospel um, envisioned in a modern context. He had something to say about this difference that he saw. A difference between orthodoxy, which is right believing, and orthopraxy, which is right acting. He said, we see that in religious fundamentalism a lot where there's a high emphasis on what you believe about the Bible and not actually do what it says. May that not be the case at Northbrook Church or Cornerstone Church or any other church in the Cedar Rapids area. We want to believe rightly and then act rightly. Paul addressed this letter to the saints, those who are set apart for God. 
because he believed that they, because they are set apart for God, would live rightly by believing rightly. So where does this faith and love come from? Paul says here it comes from their hope in the gospel. The hope that is stored up in heaven. It's a hope that they have that there's more to this life than just the here and now. More than just the physical. More than can just be found right now. See, the world says live for today. The world says grab the brass ring. There's nothing more beyond what we have right now because there's no guarantee for tomorrow. But that's not the hope of the Christian. Life is not just lived moment by moment. It's lived with a view toward eternity. There's something more coming, something more to live for. So we live with hope. The definition of faith in the book of Hebrews is, now faith is confidence of, in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. That's Hebrews 11.1. 1. The Christian life that Paul thanks God for the life of, uh, in the Colossian believers is that they are pressing on toward a goal with full confidence that they will receive it. It's stored up for them in heaven. This word stored up is sometimes translated reserved. It's, it's used of um, how someone stores something up in a bank. It's secure. It can be confident that it'll be there. You know, I have this little app on my phone uh, my son and I use in order to send money to each other, Cash App, and on there you can buy Bitcoin. I don't know if you've ever heard of this Bitcoin. It's, uh, well, it's basically fake money, right? But my, my son and I, we decided he had a dollar, I had a dollar, we would buy .0002 something of Bitcoin. And I look at that, at that app every once in a while, usually when an ad comes on the, on the TV about uh, some sort of uh, Bitcoin, and I, I go and I look. I started off with $2. I made it all the way to $2.20. I tell my son, we're rich, we're rich. And right now it's at like $1.84. That is not the kind of hope that we have stored up for us in heaven. We have a hope that's secure, that's sure, that's in the bank. We can be confident that at the end of life, there is hope for us. This hope that we have stored up for us is the hope of the gospel. Now Paul doesn't um, define the gospel here. He's defined it in other places. He simply refers to it here. He's talking more about the outcome of the gospel in Colossians. But he says that the gospel is the true word, the true message, the words of truth. Now, there are a lot of true words. Um, the sky's blue, that's certainly a true word. Uh, Abraham Lincoln was the 16th president. Yep, that's true. But those aren't the true words that Paul is speaking of here. Paul is talking about the truth of the gospel. I think the clearest um, explanation of the gospel that Paul ever gives is in uh, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15 where he says, Now brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scripture, that He was buried and He was raised on the third day, according to the Scripture, and He appeared to Cephas, 
and then to the twelve. These are the true words of the gospel. If anyone ever asks you, what is the gospel? It must include these things. That Jesus lived, that Jesus died, that Jesus rose again, and that he appeared to the the apostles. According to the scripture, all of this is laid out throughout the Old Testament. That's the gospel message. These are the true words. And these are, that's the, the central core of Christianity. This simple truth then impacts the Christian life to live a life for God and love for others. See, I think this distinction is really important. We have faith in Jesus Christ who lived and died and rose again. That's the gospel. Sometimes people get the gospel and the results of the gospel confused. They might say the gospel is loving people, or the gospel is um, treating people with justice and kindness and dignity. Now those are all good things, but that is a result of the gospel. The results of the gospel are not the same as the gospel. We have hope in the gospel that Jesus lived and died and rose again to save us from our sins, according to the scripture. We have that in the bank of heaven. It's important because there are a plenty of good people in the world. People that, that love people. People that uh, treat people with kindness and justice and dignity. But they're not hoping in the gospel of Jesus. And so they have no hope stored up for them in heaven. I was listening to NPR the other day. Actually, it was uh, 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 the Friday, Good Friday. And um, that happened to be the same time that Ramadan... Uh, Passover and Easter were all happening that same weekend. So the three uh, major religions of the book, uh, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, were all having holidays. And so they had on there an imam, uh, that's a a Muslim cleric, they had a, a, a rabbi and they had a Baptist pastor. And I remember the the rabbi and the imam were talking about sacrifice and about um, suffering, and they seemed so down. And then they had this Baptist pastor who was talking about the great news of Easter, that Jesus rose again, and that there is hope for those. And I kept thinking, I wish that that imam would listen to that Baptist pastor, because there's hope in the gospel. That's the important thing. See, all three of those, I'm sure, were good people that did great things for their community. I hear of plenty of of, um, people, even here in our community, that don't have the faith of Jesus Christ, that are good, that do good things. But that's not the hope that we have put our, our faith in. That's not where we put our hook. It's good. It's good that we don't put our faith there, because let's face it, I'm not good. You're not good. I know my own heart. I know that I'm not good. I'm not putting my faith in my own goodness or my ability to get things right. The hope that I have and that Paul is telling the Colossians about is the hope of the gospel of Jesus, that he lived and died and rose again to save us from our sins. We hold these two things in tension. The gospel is the true word of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Full stop. But the other is this, 
Our lives ought to be impacted by that in such a way that we love God and love people. We can't mix those two truths up. We can't call them synonymous. They're not. One flows from the other. The result of the gospel is what Paul turns to next then in Colossians 1.6 when he says, uh, when he talks about this, that the first result of the gospel is that the message is both individual and universal. It came to the people of Colossae and it's going out throughout the world. William Barclay again says, the gospel is universal. It is for all the world, it is not confined to one race or nation, nor to any one class or condition. A very few things in this world are open to all men. A man's mental caliber decides the studies he can undertake. A man's social class decides the circle amongst which he will move. A man's material wealth determines the possessions he can amass. A man's particular gifts decide the things he can do. But the message of the gospel is open without exception to all people. So it's growing. It's growing beyond the mere borders of Jerusalem, on into Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, even to Iowa. Paul is thankful to God that the believers in Colossae believe in a message that is growing, that is going out. Not only is it going out, but it's bearing fruit. The story of the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord is changing lives. Faith is working itself out and is evidenced not only through the world, but also in Colossae. See, fruit comes in a lot of shapes and sizes. I was at Aldi's the other day and walking through the produce aisle, and I saw these giant papayas and then tiny blueberries, uh, gargantuan grapefruit and fuzzy kiwi. All of those are fruits that come from a healthy plant. An unhealthy plant can't produce fruit. But a healthy plant produces all kinds of fruit in all kinds of ways. The gospel, because it is healthy, produces fruit as it grows. A fruit that holds on to a future hope and shows in their lives. They truly understood God's grace and they believed it and it changed them. And that same transformation is going on throughout the whole world, Paul says. Have you ever considered that, just how many people are uh, praising this Jesus that we praise here today as well? From the grand old cities of Europe to the villages of South America, the, the small towns of North America, the villages of, of South America, uh, the people in Asia and Africa, uh, islands and mountains, prairies and cities all over the world are hearing and believing and being impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, the website travelingteam.org tracks missionary statistics and it says Christians number 2.432 billion worldwide. That's Catholic and Protestant and so on. With, within 7,163 total people groups comprising 30.3% of the world population. Two and a half billion Christians throughout the world. But that universal message hasn't reached everyone yet. It's still growing. There are still over 7,000 people groups that have not yet been touched by the gospel, have not heard the gospel in their language. 
That website says 1.51 billion people speaking 6,661 languages do not have a full Bible in their first language. 145 million people speaking 1,892 languages still need translations begin, uh, translation work to begin. Now that might seem overwhelming to you. But listen to this. There are 54,000 evangelical Christians for every one unreached people group. 54,000 Christians that proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ for every one unreached people group. This is not a lost cause. God's plan uh, has a long-term plan. There's a long ways to go, but it is not unreachable because the gospel continues to grow and continues to reach throughout the world, just as it came to Colossae by the words of a man named Epaphras, it is going out to the whole world still. See, Paul knew who Epaphras was. He called him a faithful minister. Paul had no sense of competition with others that were preaching this true word. He had plenty of things to say about people that were not preaching this word, but the people that were preaching the same gospel that he was, he had no competition with them. He wanted the message to get out. And he wanted more and more people to be like Epaphras, faithfully ministering the gospel. Now who was this Epaphras? We get very little detail about him. He's mentioned here in Colossians twice and once in uh, the companion book Philemon. He was probably Gentile because of his name. Colossians says he is one of you. So he was likely a, a hometown boy. He'd heard the message somewhere along the line, perhaps from Paul himself. He would visit Paul in prison and was likely even a prisoner himself, at least for a time. Epaphras was faithful. And because of his faithfulness, the gospel is going out to them. And, and he represents others just like him, locals that have heard the gospel and proclaimed it to others. Someone, perhaps Paul himself, invested in the life of Epaphras. And that investment paid off in droves for the people of Colossae, and in return, to us. Another website, internationalstudents.org, says, it's estimated that by the year 2025, 50% of all the world leaders will have been international students. Currently, there are over 1.3 million international students studying in the U.S., and over 4.5 million studying worldwide today. That's a lot of students that are going through all kinds of cities, uh, even here in Cedar Rapids. You have Epaphrases in your own town. Co College and Mount Mercy, the international population is great there. And if you can't connect with them, because like me, you uh, have a job to do that doesn't take you amongst uh, the young people at Co and Mount Mercy, well then you can connect with other people that are doing that work. Marv Junk over at Maranatha invests in the lives of international students at Coe College. Or Ethan and Heidi Ford with Navigators are on those campuses, building into the lives of the students of, uh, with the gospel of Jesus. So that these students, who are here for just a short, short amount of time, can hear the gospel and go back to their towns and cities around the world and share that gospel message. So let me encourage you today, invest in the Epaphrases that are around you. See, the gospel's going to grow. It's going to flourish. It is uh, healthy, and so it will produce good fruit, just like it grew in Colossians, and it will bear fruit because it's the true word. So make an investment in the gospel. 
in these hometown heroes of the faith and watch the gospel grow. Paul invested in the church in Colossae uh, by writing to them, by building into these leaders, and then with his prayers. And that passage continues in verse 9 with a description of the prayers that he says for the church. And here once again we'll see the same themes come forward. Verse 9, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyfully thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. I think the order of this prayer is important. One prayer request flows to the next. So first he prays that they will have knowledge of God's will. This is the second time in this short passage that Paul has talked of God's will. He introduces himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. In the same way that he was convinced of his apostleship, Paul prays that they will understand the will of God in their lives. He prays for this knowledge of his will to come through all wisdom and understanding of the Spirit. Wisdom uh, and understanding are really two sides of the same coin. Wisdom, the word sophos, that at its core is about understanding the world according to the, the wisdom of the world. Um, whether it's wisdom of how to fix a flat tire or how a molecule holds together, that's wisdom. Uh, it's a practical. It's practical knowledge of the things that are rooted in the real world. So Paul prays that they would have wisdom. The other side of that coin is understanding. Uh, this word is sunesis, which is knowledge of things that are not of the human realm. When Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind, it's that word. And Paul says uh, that he wants them to, to, to uh, understand, as he has, the mystery of Christ. He wants them to know God's will, both know it from a practical point of view and from a mysterious point of view. Knowing God's will is a touchy subject, I think. Paul wants them to know God's will through the knowledge of the world and through the knowledge from above. But both of those are led by the Spirit. See, Paul was convinced of his apostleship by the will of God because he understood the reality of Christ. He understood it from a practical point of view. He understood because he lived at that time the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus because he had come in contact with the risen Lord, Jesus Christ, on the road to Emmaus. He had that wisdom that showed the will of God. He also had that knowledge of the will, the will of God. He knew the mystery of Christ. He knew uh, the spiritual reality of Christ. And he prays that they would know that too. That they would know the truth and they would know the mystery of Christ. They would both understand it mentally and understand it spiritually. 
They would know the will of God. And he wanted them to know the will of God so they would please God. And pleasing God looks like this. Bearing fruit, growing, being strengthened, and giving joyful thanks. Those are the very things that the gospel is doing throughout the whole world. It's growing. It's bearing fruit. Paul gives thanks. And they are strengthened. Paul is praying for them that the gospel that he has been proclaiming throughout the world will be working in them too. Paul says in Romans that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who will believe. Paul is praying that they'd have not just not some secret knowledge, some, div- some way to kind of divine the will of God. No, he wants it to be plain and simple. It's the knowledge of God working itself out in their lives. He wants them to understand and know God's will. There have been so many times in my ministry people have said that they didn't understand or they didn't know God's will. And it often meant they didn't know what step to take next. I've even made that, uh, that announcement in my life too. I didn't know God's will, meaning I didn't know am I supposed to choose this way or choose that way. And for some Christians it becomes almost um, you know, unbearable. They don't know what to do. They're paralyzed because they don't know which decision is the right one. They don't know God's will. And I at one time was, uh, was paralyzed by this too. I didn't know what to do, especially when it was a hard decision to make. So, so many Christian, uh, Christians fret and worry, am I in God's will? Do you want to know what the will of God is in, in your life? It's the same as the will of God for Paul and for the Colossians. That the gospel would take root and flourish. That it would work its way out in the fruit that it bears. That it would be a life pleasing to God. That's God's will. Are you living a life that is focused on the gospel? In Romans 12, 1 and 2 it says, Make our bodies a living sacrifice. Are you making your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord? If you are, you are smack dab in the middle of God's will. You don't have to worry, should I make this choice or that choice? Make a choice. God is with you if you are, if you are putting him first, if you are making your body a living sacrifice, if you are following the gospel. Whichever choice you make, you are smack dab in the middle of God's will. See, Paul was in a jail cell. And he said he was an apostle of God by the will of God. I'm sure that if he looked at his life before that and said, should I decide to go this way which will lead to prison, or this way which leads to freedom, and he ended up in prison, he might have gone, was I in the will of God? But because he knew that he had made his life a living sacrifice, even in prison, he knew he was in the will of God. If you've made decisions in your life that have ended up not kind of working out the best for you, and you've wondered, was I in the will of God? If you were living a life of of sacrifice, if you were living a life that was um, pointed toward the gospel, even in those rotten circumstances, you were in the will of God. 
when my wife and I were um, just out of seminary, um, we were deciding what to do next, and I had this idea that um, God wanted us to plant a church in Iowa City. Now, because I was um, young and somewhat stupid, I just decided I would just go there, because all you need to do is go start preaching, and pretty soon a church will happen. And some people said, you know, you should maybe go get some training on how to plant a church. And I said, ah, now nah, I've already had four years of seminary. I'm, I'm ready to do it. So we packed up our little bit of belongings from Dallas, Texas, and moved up to Iowa City. And um, nobody came. There was no church. Uh, I didn't even know how to start. Pretty soon I was working for Youth for Christ uh, there in Iowa City and... and um, delivering packages and trying to scrape by. And uh, my wife and I were uh, living in this tiny apartment. And I remember thinking, did I miss it? I mean, certainly I made some mistakes. I should have gotten some training. I should have listened to people that were um, wiser than me. But did I miss it? Was I out of God's will? It took me a long time, 20 years now, to go you know what? I was in God's will. It was God's will for me to be delivering packages and working at Youth for Christ and understanding that um, just some letters behind my name were not enough, that I needed to find my identity in Christ. I needed to find uh, fulfillment in my relationship with Him. So I was in God's will, even though it was a rotten circumstance, that if I could go back in time and do it again, I probably wouldn't make that choice. And even if I didn't make that choice, but I was living a life of sacrifice, of, of giving um, to God and living according to the gospel, it would still be in God's will. If you've made choices in your life that have ended you in places that you didn't expect, or have given you hardship, or have even, as Paul did, landed in prison... It doesn't mean that you, weren't out of, that you weren't in God's will. God's will, no matter the circumstance, is that the gospel goes out and that uh, his message is proclaimed. If Paul could be in the middle of God's will there, you can be too. Finally, in Colossians 1, 13 and 14, he tells us what happens when the gospel goes out, when prayers are answered, we live a life according to the will of God. Verse 13, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of, of sins. Again, Barclay's comments are golden on this word picture here. He says, the word picture which Paul uses, for, uh, the word which Paul uses to transfer or to bring over is the Greek word methistemi. This is a word with a special use. In the ancient world, when one empire won a victory over another, it was the custom to take the population of the defeated country and transfer it lock, stock, and barrel to the conqueror's land. Thus the people of the northern kingdom were taken away to Assyria, and the people of the southern kingdom were taken away to Babylon. So Paul says that God has transferred the Christian from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his son. That was not just a transference, it was a rescue. The gospel working in us 
and in the world brings us right into the kingdom of God and the forgiveness of sins. We're no longer dominated by darkness, having our mind clouded by the sins that so easily entangle us. We are basking in the light of the beautiful kingdom of God, and we're now in his domain. Paul could say confidently that he was in the will of God in the midst of the prison because he'd been transferred from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of God by the power of the true word that he had shared with them, the truth of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you know this will in your world today? Do you know the will of God for you? Paul prayed for the Colossians, and I pray for you and for myself, that we would know it, and that, um, that we would be built up in the wisdom and knowledge of God, so that we can live a life that is pleasing to God, because it's rooted and saturated in the true word of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that um, you make your will known to us, not to know every detail of what decision we should make, but just that, uh, that the gospel is being proclaimed and that um, it is going out and changing lives. And we want to be a part of that. God, I pray for the Epaphrases of, of our community the ones who were born around here and are here to uh, proclaim the gospel. I pray, God, that you would encourage them and support them. I pray that there would be people um, here in this church that would uh, find those Epaphrases uh, that are going back to their hometowns and that they would invest in them. I pray, God, that um, we would all know that, um, that your will is perfect and we can trust you and when we give our lives to you, that you will use it for your purposes, for the glory of uh, the Father, by the sacrifice of Jesus, his Son, according to the Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.